All right, so we have our text here, and we are looking at um, plague number nine. Uh, so this is, again, remember, if you break these plagues down, you have three, 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 and then one that sits off by itself, which is for next week. So you have basically what we call these three triads. Each one of them, we see a pattern in it. The first one of each one of the three, God tells Moses to go out to Pharaoh. The second of all three, go into Pharaoh. And the third of all three is just a plague that is introduced in Egypt without any warning to anybody. There's no confrontation with Pharaoh. Now, sometimes there's a confrontation after the plague is introduced, but there isn't a warning. There isn't any kind of confrontation beforehand. There isn't a let my people go or this will happen. The third one is always just it hits. Okay? So that's where we are. The ninth one, if you remember, is the third of the third triad. The other thing that we've seen is that they get more intense as you go forward. Uh, the level of uh, personal affliction that the Egyptians are feeling um, is very, very palpable in the sense that in the beginning there's great inconveniences and in the middle of it there is like disease and, and there's this attack to their personal health and then by the end of it we see death being introduced both to cattle and to humanity and of course the last one is the penultimate of all of the plagues. So what I want to start with today is kind of getting in the mode, the perspective of what this text is about. Before we jump into it even, I want to kind of lay some groundwork, if you will, to help us to understand the text more fully. First of all, let's, let's, let's uh, think about it ourselves. How many of you can remember a time when you experienced like complete darkness or being scared of the dark? Do you remember that as a child or maybe a couple of weeks ago? I mean, I don't know how how often you find yourself in dark situations. Have you ever found yourself threatened in the sense of there's this darkness and there was a fear that went with it? You know, not necessarily a fear of the dark itself, but a fear of what might be in that dark or what might be around the corner. Have you ever been walking out on a dark night and you didn't realize where you were or how dark it was or how lonely it was and you started getting nervous about where you were because the darkness kind of created that fear? Uh, maybe you can think back to a, a time you were a kid when... Um, you lay awake at night and you didn't want to be in your bed by yourself in your room because everything got really dark and you hear something and you just kind of fear kind of overwhelms you. Have you ever relate to that? Think about those times. Um, have you ever been in a room, like an auditorium, when all of a sudden maybe a storm was outside and all of a sudden just lights cut out without warning, just the lights were gone and you're like, whoa, and you're like, where is everything and where is everybody? Uh, have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? If you have, then you kind of get the idea of the feeling that goes along with the text. So it's not just about I can't see. There's this overwhelming presence of darkness, if you will, that is really being highlighted in the text today. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced total darkness because total darkness is actually very rare. There's only three places I'm told that you can actually experience total, complete darkness. That is in a cavern, in other words, inside the earth, in the very depths of the ocean, in other words, very at the very bottom, you can experience complete darkness, and in deep space. And the deep space is the one that threw me the most, because I was like, isn't there stars everywhere? And like, can't you see that? I don't know. But somehow, that's what scientists tell us, is that there's three places that you can experience total 
darkness. So how many of y'all have ever been to DeSoto Caverns up in North Alabama? Have you ever made that trip? It's an awesome place to go. When, when you go in on the tour, they'll take you inside there, and they take you kind of into the depths of DeSoto Caverns, and you feel how cool it is down there, and they tell you all the things that have happened in there and how the caverns work and how deep they are, stalactites, stalagmites, all those things. But then they sit you down, and they give you this presentation, and all of a sudden they warn you. They're like, we're about to turn the lights off, and we don't want you to be overwhelmed, but you're going to experience complete darkness. And so they do. They turn the lights off, and it's like, Poof. even though they warned you, you're like, whoa, it is really, really dark. Like, you just like, you feel like you're kind of floating in a sense, like, what, what happened in here? And then they tell you to do this very interesting thing. They say, we want you to take your finger and touch your nose. And do you know that you cannot do that? You cannot take your, you'll miss it. You'll, you'll touch the side of your face. And I think as much as my finger has been up here at my nose, I'm just kidding, that's not happening. Um, but what, what we do find is that it messes up your orientation, your sense of equilibrium when you have complete darkness. So there's this orientation that we have to have that light gives to us as we touch our nose with our finger. When there's complete darkness, you're unable to do that. So that's one of the indications that you are in complete darkness. So that is an overwhelming sense. Think about that for a moment. Not only do you feel that darkness, but it actually messes with your mind. It messes with your ability to orient yourself with the things around you. You can't tell up from down, right from left, front from back, and you just really find yourself trying to see if you can feel anything that can give you direction when you find yourself in that situation. So let's come to our text here for a moment. God has steadily increased the level of intensity uh, with each one of these plagues as he's introduced them. So many of the Egyptians, they are beginning to experience this drama. God has brought it to this conclusion. This is the last of the threes. And so we have the penultimate one that's coming next week, which again is the Exodus itself. So we know we're coming towards the end. God is being very intentional in everything that he's doing right here. Many of the Egyptian gods are in the crosshairs of every one of these plagues. God is being intentional in how he's attacking these false gods of Egypt. All of these plagues are a demonstration of God's power. They're a demonstration of his sovereignty. They are a demonstration of who God is. We go back to the beginning where Moses says, if I go to them, uh, who should I say sent me? And he said, I am sent you. In other words, Yahweh, that's where God reminds Moses of his covenant name that he gave to Abraham. Yahweh, I am that I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And so when Moses actually finds himself before Pharaoh, he says, I am has sent me to you to tell you to let his people go. And then, and then Pharaoh gives that great question, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? I don't know him. He's not in our Egyptian pantheon of gods. Uh, I, I've never heard of him before, and neither am I going to listen to him. I don't know who this God is. So from that point forward, the book of Exodus is about learning, understanding who God is, who he is in his nature, who he is in his character, who he is in his power, who he is in his authority, his intentions. So all of these things are beginning to reveal the character of God. We're seeing what he cares about. We're seeing how powerful he is. We're seeing how sovereign he is over and over again. In the beginning of the plagues, we also often are introduced to the condition of Pharaoh's heart. If you remember those first few plagues, matter of fact, the overwhelming majority of them, I think all the way to five or six, it only tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart or it would just simply state the condition of Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 
But it's not until you get to really these last three or four that it begins to introduce this idea of God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now, people debate on why it's like that. Well, you know, God gave him a chance and he didn't repent, so then God wouldn't let him repent. And then some people say, no, God's actually in charge of the whole thing from the very beginning. And obviously, I believe that that is true. God is in charge of everything from the very beginning because God's in charge of everything from the beginning of human history. God's in charge of everything that he wants to be in charge of because he's God. And I think that really a lot of times we get off the rails when we really begin to focus on that part of it and not understanding that really it's about the sovereignty of God. It's about the fact that God really does control the wheel of human history. And in Egypt, the heart is a picture of authority. Pharaoh's heart is the most authoritative thing in all of Egypt. And therefore, the picture of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh is a picture of how sovereign God is over the events of mankind. And so we've seen that over and over and over again. God's sovereignty is something that's powerful. It's something that's undeniable. It's something that you find from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. When you get into the Gospels, you see it very powerfully as well. When you get into the Gospels, matter of fact, when we stay through the Gospel of John, do you remember when Jesus comes to the point of actual crucifixion and, and they've been arrested in the garden and they bring him before the Sanhedrin and he goes before Annas who is really seen as the high priest from the Jewish people and then he goes before Caiaphas who is the high priest from the Roman perspective and then he goes before Pilate and what's very interesting that if you don't pay attention to it you miss it is that all the Jewish religious leaders they want Jesus re they want him dead they want him dead right now and they can't make it happen they even make a statement. Matthew records this. He says, um, we cannot kill him in the next two days. Okay? We cannot have him killed in the next two days because this is during the feast. So we will not do it over the next two days. Guess when it happens? I hope it's over the next two days. Then Pilate, when he gets before Pilate, Pilate says, this is an innocent man. I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to have innocent blood on me. This man's innocent. I'm going to let him loose. So think about that. Everybody in the story wants something, and none of them can deliver it. The religious leaders want him dead. They can't make it happen. Pilate wants to let him go. He can't make it happen. And yet the only person who's completely in control from beginning to end is Jesus. He decides when he's going to die. He decides when he's going to be arrested. He decides who's going to be arrested with him. And if it's nobody, then that's the way he's going to have it. He's the one that controls everything from beginning to end. And that's a picture of who God is. Jesus is that perfect personification of God. And when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So this is a picture of the sovereignty of God over human history. We see that very clearly with all of these plagues in the Exodus as well. Now, let's jump into the actual culture of Egypt and understand why this is such a significant plague. I don't think that it takes a Bible scholar or an expert historian on the ancient Near East to understand that the Egyptians worship the sun. I mean, how many of y'all have ever saw Night at the Museum? Okay. You know that the Egyptians love the sun. Okay. Amon Re, Amon Re is the sun god. Okay. And that's probably the biggest, most powerful god that the Egyptians worship. And I want you to see that as we've gone through these plagues, it seems that God has targeted this one for the very end, for the very last one that's targeted here. Now, the reason is significant, not because it's going to be a tough battle. It's not. God's just going to cover the sun up, and that's going to be it. But 
it's significant because of how much trust the Egyptians have put into this God and how connected this God is to Pharaoh. So we're going to see all of that develop. But first, let's kind of build some framework of understanding their worship and adoration of this God, Amon Re. First of all, there are all kinds of big gods and many gods in Egypt. And when it comes to the sun, it's the same thing is true. They have three very specific gods that are associated with the sun that are smaller. That is Horus, who is called the god of the sunrise. We also have Aten, who is the god of the round midday sun. And then we also have Atum, who is the god of the sunset. So they have these smaller gods. One is the god of the sunrise. One is the god of high noon. And the other is the god of the sunset. Now, Amon Re is the one who's over all of them. He is the most powerful. He is the sun god. They will often refer to um, the sun as the sun disk. So he is the god of the sun disk. Now, there are many things written about Amon Re that give us a picture of who he is and what his, is his, um, uh, the way the Egyptians thought about him. Here's one right here. I am the great god who came into being of myself. He who created his names. He who has no opponent among the gods. So this is a powerful god, the biggest of all in Egypt. He is the chief god, if you can have something like that. Okay? Now here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to actually walk you through a lot of literature that comes from the ancient Near East and e Egypt that helps you get a picture of how they thought of Amon Re. Now, here's what's amazing about it as well. If you listen very carefully, you will hear that they talk about Amon Re or Amon Ra, you can say it either way. They think about him very much the way we think about Yahweh. You're going to hear some of the same language like Amon Re is to be worshipped from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. It's some of the same exact language that you and I are familiar with that we sing are actually songs that they sang in Egypt about this God, particularly. So it's very fascinating as you begin to follow the way the Egyptian mind wrapped itself around the worship of Ra. There is a specific hymn that says, There is none besides him. You mold the earth to your wish, you and you alone. All people, herds and flocks, all on earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with their wings. Sounds very much like some of our psalms. When the sun came up, the Egyptians saw it as the victory of Amon-Re. Amon-Re dominates the day. Whenever the sun began to set, they felt like it was the overwhelming of dark spirits that were coming on the land. And Amon-Re has gone to fight that battle. And if Amon-Re rises the next day, then he has defeated the foe and they get to see and live another day of blessing. So they really saw the cycle of the sun coming and going, the rising and the setting and the darkness of night. They saw this with very specific spiritual lenses, if you will. Now, I told you that Amon-Re is directly connected to Pharaoh, and this is a very interesting perspective as well. Because Pharaoh, whatever the Pharaoh was, whoever it was at the time, was considered to be the son of Amon-Re. In other words, he was considered to be the son of God. 
One author puts it this way. He says, if the kernel of the civilization stands a special relation between the divine father figure of the sun god, ruler of creation, and um, solitary offspring on earth, the reigning king of Egypt. So the divine in the skies and the human on earth, on land. This establishes the key relationship in creation between the sun god as the elder partner in the sky and his issue on earth, the junior partner. Within the reign of each king, he alone appears as the living representative of the sun god on earth. And he enjoys a unique sovereignty in the practical exercise of power. In other words, it is seen that whoever the pharaoh is, that he is sovereign over the earth. That he is sovereign. He is the direct representation of God to humanity. He is the one that goes between God and the people. He is the exact representation of the God in the heavenlies. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, here's why. Because all Satan has is the ability to mimic. All Satan has is the ability to copy what he sees. Now you think about this, as much as he can copy it, the more and more he can water down what the real thing is. Because many people look at that and go, oh, look, you know, the Hebrew gods are just like all the other gods. They had a son of God. They had a son of God. This culture had a son of God. You know why? Because that's what Satan does. He mimics, he copies, because that's the best way to undermine the truth. And that's why we have this story, is to remind us of who the true God is, which one is really powerful, and which one is really real, and which one is not. They worshipped Pharaoh much in the same way that they worshipped Amon Re. Matter of fact, we have songs that they sang. We have poems that they read, prayers that they read to Pharaoh, because he was the representation of that divine being on earth, and he was just as divine himself. One goes this way. It was a hymn of praise. It was actually the, the Pharaoh Amos. It says, he is looked upon like ray when he rises, like the shining of a ten, like the rising of Kepri at the sight of his rays on high, like a tum in the eastern sky. So, so Pharaoh was the one who was worshipped as this representation of a bigger God. There was another Pharaoh that came. Uh, his name was Merneptah. If you ever studied um, Jewish history, then you know the Merneptah stone is a very um, interesting artifact that was found as one of the first proofs that we have of the Israelite slaves who were in that region during that time because it actually mentions them on the stone. Well, anyway, that's called the Merneptah stone. This was a pharaoh in Egypt this time. Listen to what one of the, the servants sings about Pharaoh Merneptah. Be joyful, the entire land. Good times have come. The Lord has ascended in all lands, and orderliness has gone down to its throne. The king of upper and lower Egypt, Lord of millions of years, great in kingship, just like Re-Amon, who overwhelms Egypt with festivals. The son of Re, who is more excellent than any king, Merneptah. See, this is a picture of how they thought of the king of Egypt. Ra has placed the king on the earth of the living forever and eternity in order to judge humankind, to satisfy the gods, to make right happen and to annihilate wrong, such that he gives divine offerings to the gods. 
funerary offerings to the blessed dead. The name of the king is in the sky like that of Ra. He lives in joy like Ra Horakati. Nobles rejoice when they see him. The populace gives him praise in his role of the child. In other words, Pharaoh is the son of God. So not only did the Egyptians think of Pharaoh as the son of God, they thought of him as being above all else on earth. In fact, little school children were known for singing this song. Worship Pharaoh, living forever, within your bodies and associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is Ray, by whose beams one sees. He is one who illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. So in other words, they're attributing to Pharaoh the ability to help people see even better than the sun. Now, how does he do that? Because they believe that somehow Pharaoh imparts wisdom to them, helps them to see the way, the way to worship the sun god, the way to experience his blessings. Now, here's the thing that's very frightening is how close much of this is to our own worship. And that's what you always have to be careful of, is that Satan is always mimicking the truth. And the best lie is one that's hidden between two truths. The best lie is when it's surrounded by things that look very familiar, but yet this one thing is off. This is why God has given us the scriptures, so that we can know these stories, so that we can know his character, so that we, as Exodus' purpose is, so that we can know him. And know his character. So let's jump into our text with that kind of background. And you're going to begin to see why this is such a powerful plague visited on Egypt. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness. In all the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, again, I want you to remind you of something. Picture yourself there. Have you ever been in a fully lit room? When all of a sudden, the power went out. Do you remember the feeling of that darkness? Like, whoa, I don't know where anything is. I better stay right where I am until I can orient myself to this room that I'm unfamiliar with. That's exactly what happened right here. It was pitch darkness, is what the scripture says. I have this friend, he was a mentor of mine. He discipled me from the time I became a Christian into my college years. And he is about six foot ten or eleven. And uh, he's African American, tall and skinny, as you've ever seen. Has not an ounce of athletic ability in his body whatsoever. Um, and if you just knew this guy, this guy is just laughter all the time. He was so funny. He was a jokester, prankster, just fun to be around. Anyway, I want to tell you the story because it fits into the, what we're talking about here. 
So he goes to this men's retreat, okay? This is a true story. Goes to this men's retreat, and he signs up for it. And several churches have come together for this men's retreat. He signs up for it. He's a single guy. He's never been married in his life, even to this day, never gotten married. So he goes to this, and they just assign him a roommate. So um, he walks in the first day, gets his key, goes into his room. There's nobody in there. So he sets up all his stuff, you know, puts his toiletry into the bathroom and all that kind of thing. And then he goes to the first conference. So he still doesn't even know who his roommate is. Could be sitting right next to him at the conference, has no idea. So after the conference is over, of course, he talks to some people. He goes back to his room. And when he goes in, there's the guy uh, sitting in the bed um, reading a book. Well, this is the first time this guy has seen him. It's the first time he's seen this guy. So this guy, like... You know, you know, you see somebody that's six foot ten walking into your room, and he was like, "Hi, I'm Staffin. Uh, you know, I go to such and such church." And he was like, "Oh, hi, my name is Bill. I go to such and such church." And he goes, "Well, I guess we're roommates." And he was like, "Yeah." And he said the guy was kind of like cold and like not very friendly. Like he didn't really you know what, what this was all about. And he said, "Well, I'm gonna um, just get a shower before I go to bed." And he said, "That's fine." So he goes in, he gets a shower, you know, he gets, does the whole shower routine, gets out, brushes his teeth and all that kind of thing. Well, when he's done, he walks out of the bathroom like many of us do, and he hits the light. And when he hits the light, he realizes this guy's gone to bed. Like all the lights are off. It's completely dark. And he's like walking. He's like, oh my goodness, I have no idea where I am. So he said, the first thought I had in my head was, I don't want to wake this guy up. So I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and crawl to my bed. So he does. He gets down on his hands and knees, and he starts crawling along the floor. And he says, somewhere along the way, I just start giggling inside. Because he was sitting there thinking to myself, I know I can't see, but that guy's eyes are probably already adjusted to the darkness. And all he sees is me down on four legs, you know, or four, uh, I guess two arms and two legs, you know, crawling around on my knees and my hands and trying to get to my bed. And so he said, I was literally like I had the church giggles, and I was just like holding them in, trying not to laugh out loud. He goes, so fine. Finally, I get to my bed, and I climb up in it, and I pull the sheets over, and he goes, and I hear, oh, your bed is over there. I climbed into the wrong bed. He climbed into the bed with the man, and then he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, and he said he got into his bed, and he said he was laughing so hard that he was shaking in his bed because he could not believe what he had just done, and he's like, all I wanted to do was call everybody and tell them what just happened, and he said the next day after that guy got up, he never saw him again. He never came back to the room. I guess he left the conference or whatever. He's just thinking, what kind of conference is this? But anyway, uh, that's a great story about how when we get into that kind of darkness and we can't orient ourselves and we don't know where we're going, we're we get pretty desperate. And that's the picture that the text creates for us for these people. Think about what it says again. It says that they sat down for three days and did nothing. In other words, they couldn't see where they were going. They couldn't feel their way around. They couldn't find anything. So they literally sat for three days in silence and in darkness. Now, I truly believe as this text reads that this was not a darkness that came from the sun never came up. I fully believe, and again, I, I can't prove it from the text, but just kind of the flow of the text makes me believe that it was bright daylight outside, and then all of a sudden, it was dark. And it just hit them and overwhelmed them. And as the darkness overwhelmed them, that's where they were like, oh my goodness, what, what happened? What, what just happened? The text even seems to indicate that the Egyptians were unable to even create artificial light. 
In other words, they weren't even able to light candles. That's how supernatural this event was. Now, I don't know if it was because they couldn't find it. I don't know if it was because they couldn't light it. Or I don't know if it was because they could light it, and yet it was so supernatural that God would not let any light radiate from anything that they had. So that they were in this complete darkness. What is this a picture of? Just God's ability to do what he wants to do, God's ability to show that their God isn't the powerful God that he is, that, that's part of it. But I think there's something deeper here, and I want to reemphasize this because we've emphasized it a few times as we've gone through these plagues, and that is this. This is a clear picture of decreation again. In other words, as we've gone through this, if you pay attention and you listen very carefully to the words that are being used and the images that are being given, you can't help but draw lines back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And you, and you do the same thing here. One thing we see is that God is sovereign over time. He tells the events when they're going to start, when they're going to end, how powerful they're going to be, how involved they're going to be. Uh, he shows that he's sovereign over Moses. Remember, Moses didn't want to do this. He's like, send someone else. And he's like, no, you're going to do it. God's sovereign over Moses. God's sovereign over Pharaoh. God's sovereign over his people. And the other thing that we've been emphasizing is that God is sovereign over creation as well. Now think about this. In the creation story, you have this picture of God separating the waters. And in the plagues, you have God turning the waters to blood. You have in the creation story, God separating the dry land from the water and filling it with trees and seed-bearing plants. In the plague story, you have God destroying the trees and the seed-bearing plants with hail and locusts. In the creation story, you have animals that serve humanity. In the plague story, you have animals that are attacking humanity. In the creation story, you have man who begins to live because God breathes life into him. In the plague story, you have man dying and breathing no more. And, as we see in our text today, in the creation story, you see God saying, let there be light, and there was light. In the plague story, you hear, let there be darkness, and there was darkness. It's decreation. It's going backwards. What does this teach us? It teaches us a fundamental truth that we all need to hold close to our being, and that is this. God is the force that holds things in check and keeps things in balance. That goes with the big things like the ozone layer and the climate and all those type of things. Not that we don't have stewardship over those things. We do, because that's what God put us here for. But ultimately, God is the one who holds those things in check, not us. But it's also the smaller things like your life and the elements of your life. There's a balance that we have to have to live life. And God is so involved in our life that even those smaller balances of who we are, relationships, even our, our body, the chemistry of what keeps us alive, God keeps these things in check. If God were to remove himself from it, chaos would erupt. And that's what we see depicted for us in this story. It's not God who's necessarily coming in and inflicting this. It's God who is backing out of it and allowing chaos just to take over. Remember, even though the, the frogs overran, what did God do? <laughs> he pushes them back. 
Even though the flies overran the country, what happened? When God said it was over, they're gone, they're dead. Why? Because God is what holds things in check. God is the being, he's the power, he's the person who's behind all of this. You see, we've seen this connection over and over again. We've highlighted it over and over again just so that you see how intentional it is. But I want to read to you what one author says about this because I think he hits it so crystal clear. Creation is at God's command both to deliver his people and to destroy his enemies. The plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than life. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day, whereas the climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings in the last plague. The plagues do not run rampant, however. They eventually cease, and with each cessation is another display of God's creative power. He once again restores order to chaos as he did in the beginning. The waters are restored. The pesky insects and animals retreat. Each plague is a reminder of the supreme power of God who holds chaos at bay, but who, if he chooses, will step aside and allow chaos to plague his enemies. You see, it's very easy to underestimate the power of this ninth plague. You could dismiss it as, well, this is just a huge inconvenience. I mean, think about the hail hitting the ground and how terrifying that must have been. Think about the locusts covering everything out there and how that would just seem like this just uh, apocalypse happening all around them. All this is is darkness. I mean, it's a huge inconvenience. Nobody's dying, are they? Now we're asking good questions. No one's dying, are they? Because if you begin to ask that question, what you find is you're asking the right questions. It's not so, ma- so much how much destruction this plague is creating as much as it is what this plague is warning everyone about what is to come. You see, from the beginning to the end of Scripture, light is life. And darkness is death. This plague is the last warning before the death angel is going to come over Egypt. It's the last warning to anyone who will listen about what this last plague, the tenth plague, is going to entail. God was proving to Egypt and he was proving to Pharaoh that he's the only true God. I think this is a great time for us to kind of reflect on our own lives. What's the application to our own stories, to our own lives, to our own situations? What might God be doing in your life to destroy any false gods that you've been dedicating yourself to? You see, as much as we say, well, we don't worship the sun, um, we do worship things that are false gods in our life if we're not careful. And just as the Egyptians would not have considered themselves worshipers of false gods, so we would go, I don't worship false gods. But the question is, what do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your money on? What's the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning, the last thing you think of when you go to bed at night? What's on your heart? What's your passions? What drives you? You see, these are the things that if we're not careful, they begin to call for our allegiance and our attention and ultimately our worship. And we always need to be reflecting on that. 
Maybe sometimes in our life, whenever chaos erupts, maybe it's God stepping aside to allow something to happen to show us a God that we've allowed to come into our lives that we are giving time and attention and resources to. Not always, but maybe sometimes. And the question we always have to ask when that happens is, what am I putting my faith in in the midst of this crisis? Where are my allegiances during this crisis? You see, a lot of times what I find with Christians is when they walk through difficult times, they begin to question God instead of worship Him. Well, what does that say about their faith? Well, it says that their faith is based on what they feel like God is doing for them. In other words, if God's doing all the things that I want him to do and he's answering my prayers the way I want, then my faith is really strong and I'm out there and I'm doing what he wants me to do. But all of a sudden, when I don't understand what he's doing and I back off of my faith, then what I have is a bargained faith. I have a faith that's based on what God does for me. And if he's the kind of God I want him to be, then I'll be the kind of follower that he wants me to be. You see, the darkness in this story is deeply physical, but my friends, don't miss the fact that it's deeply spiritual. And that's what the text means when it says it was a darkness that could be felt. Why? Because darkness, in essence, from a biblical point of view, is absence. Darkness is the absence of light. And so whenever we see darkness in Scripture, it's a picture of the absence of God. Look at some of the verses that allude to this. Proverbs 4, 19. The way of the wicked is like, what does it say? What does it say? The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. Why is the way of the wicked like deep darkness? Well, look how it continues. They do not know over what they stumble. I want you to, again, go back to that moment, maybe that you can remember, where it's completely dark, and you're beginning to feel your way through, trying to find your way to a certain, and all of a sudden, you hit something, and you trip over something, and you have no idea what it is. You, you put your hands on it, you try and feel around it, you can't even tell what it is. You're like, I don't know, it's something in the way, it's something heavy, it's something, I don't know what this is. That's the same way it is for people who walk in darkness, they keep getting tripped up by these false gods that they worship. And here's the thing. They don't even realize that they're worshiping false gods. They don't even know what they're tripping over. Why? Because they live in this deep darkness. Jesus says just as much in the Gospel of John, John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Darkness is a presence more than it is, well, let me just put it this way. When you feel darkness from a spiritual sense, it's more like a condition of your heart than it is just a condition of your environment. Does that make sense? In other words, you can be in darkness, but when you feel darkness, it's actually something on the inside, not something on the outside. It, it's not just the fact that there's no light out there. It is that there is this very heavy impact that it's having on your soul. Think about this. This passage right here says that there was this deep 
darkness. Other translations say a heavy darkness. Another one says a dark darkness, which I think gets across the point. And when you go throughout the New Testament, you find that the New Testament writers pick up on this. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He picks up on this idea of light and darkness and the darkness of the internal as much as the external. He says in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened where? In their understanding. So it's not an outside darkness, it's an inside darkness that Paul's relating this to. They are alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their, what does he say? Hardness of heart. Do you think Paul's thinking about the Exodus at this point? Yeah, he's connecting this whole story about Pharaoh's heart and the condition of his hardened heart and how he lives in this darkness and he doesn't understand. And Paul is likening the people of his day who don't know Jesus, who need to be introduced into him, to understand what Jesus can do for them as Savior. And he likens it to being darkened in the mind. The Apostle John, he loves the imagery of light and darkness. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in, what does it say? We lie and do not practice the truth. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean walk in physical darkness? Huh. He means walk. The walk is a, a euphemism for living when we live in darkness look away it says in verse 7 but if we walk live in the what does it say as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin this heavy darkness is a direct reflection of Pharaoh's heart now, let's take a look at his reaction. Look at verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Now, do you see what he's doing here? I want you to pay close attention to what Pharaoh's doing. I want you to pay close attention to what he has done. Do you remember the first time Moses approached him and said, Y'all aren't going anywhere. And then after the first plague, he was like, well, y'all can go worship God, but you got to stay in Egypt. And then after the next one, he was like, well, y'all can go worship God, and you can go a little ways, but you can't go too far. And then he said, well, y'all can go out into the wilderness, but only your men. you got to leave the women and children behind. And now he's saying, all right, you men, women, and children, y'all can all go, but you got to leave the cattle behind. Do you see what he's doing every single time? Number one is he will not let go of a little bit of control. He knows he's losing. That's why he's bargaining. That's why he keeps going, okay, well, I'll let you do this, but I'm not going to let you do that. He's trying to hold on to at least one little area. Why? Because he wants a little bit of control. Listen to me. You can write this down, take this to the bank. A dark heart always has trouble giving up control. A dark heart always has trouble with giving up control. Look at verse 25. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So here's the thing. If you live from Pharaoh's perspective, you live in this danger of partial control. And I see this all the time. I see it in my own life. 
I see it in people that I talk to, that I minister to, that I counsel with. This is an epidemic among Christianity, and it's something that's true about all of us at some point in our lives, and that is this. We sell ourselves that we can partially follow Jesus. We sell it to ourselves that all he really wants is 10% of what I make, all he wants is one day a week, and all he wants is for me to not cuss around other Christians. And so we kind of minimize what it means to follow Jesus into these certain patterns of life. And the reality is the scripture says you are bought with a price. You are not your own. But what happens is we want to hold on to just a little bit of control. God, you can have my family life and, and you can have my um, hobbies and, and you can have uh, my 10% and you can have my devotion. I'll go to small groups and all that. But, but my work, I, I've got to have control of that. I, I've got to make the decisions here. Or maybe it's your family. Or maybe it's your hobbies. I don't know. Everybody, it's different when we walk through life as we journey. It becomes different at different times. But you know what I'm talking about. It's that one little thing that we want to be the God over this. God, you can have all of that, but this one little area. I mean, why, why would you want that? Because he wants all of us. You know why? Because he gave all of himself so that we could be made free. All he asks in return is what he's given at the beginning. But yet we will try and sell ourselves that we can still be followers of Jesus and still hold or maintain control over certain aspects of our life. But what we see here in Moses' response is an unwillingness to compromise. He, he did it the whole time. Stay in Egypt? No. Don't go too far? No. We're going. Men? No. We're taking our women and children with us. Well, don't take the animals? No. We're taking the animals with us. Pharaoh was always trying to hold something back. What about you? Do you find yourself bargaining with God? All right, God, I will give you this if you let me have this. I will do this for you if you do this for me. I will let you go this far if you let me have this one part. On the other end of this story is a beautiful picture that we really haven't highlighted, and that is that in the land of Goshen, they never saw any darkness. They had light the whole time. Just as darkness is about a spiritual absence, I think you can see the connection that light is a spiritual presence. Listen to how John puts it in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is, yes, and in him is no at all, at all. Listen to the imagery that the Apostle Peter gives us, 2 Peter 1, 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises where not out here in your hearts it's something that's happening internally he says that there's this darkness that exists inside of us and the word of god is this light that begins to expose and push away the darkness and as we see that we give more and more of ourselves over to god and as we do that we begin to experience the impact of having light illuminate who we are on the inside ultimately salvation is about walking not in darkness but walking in light 
1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of and into marvelous. Yeah, do you see the imagery here? Paul uses light and darkness as these very strong metaphors for our transformation as Christians. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what do we do? Walk as children of light. Let's look at Moses' response to Pharaoh. Verse 25. But Moses said, you must allow or you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. I love that. I mean, for a guy who's really bad at speaking, I mean, he's, he's pretty good with words here. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And I want you to pay very close attention to what Moses says right here. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Did you see that? Don't miss that. that that's incredible truth right there. Number one, he says, ah, when we leave, not a hoof will be left behind. Why does Moses need to make sure that no hoof is left behind? That is a picture of complete surrender. The reason we can't leave a hoof behind is because all this belongs to God. We can't leave behind something that belongs to him. All of this belongs to him. The women belong to him. The children belong to him. The men belong to him. The land belongs to him. The cattle belong to him. We can't leave anything behind because to leave something behind would be a bad steward of what God has entrusted us with because it's not ours, it's his. And don't miss what he says right here. Why do you need to take all those animals with you? Because we don't know yet what we're going to have to sacrifice. I want you to think about that for a minute. Moses is saying, we don't know yet how many animals it's going to take. We don't know yet how much this sacrifice is going to cost us. We don't know yet what we're going to lose in this. We don't know yet what kind of setbacks we're going to experience. All we know <clears throat> is that he has called us to go, and we are his, and this is his. And he is a God that we can trust him. He's demonstrated his power and his ability over and over again. We have no idea where this is going to take us, what the road is going to be like, how difficult it's going to be. All we know is he's called us to go, and we're going to go. I want you to think about what Moses is saying there. It's something that we all need to come to grips with. Sometimes God calls you into discomfort. Sometimes God calls you to sacrifice even to a point that it hurts. Is it because he's not loving? No, it's not. It's because he's teaching us 
who he is and what is better to dedicate our life to. He's showing us that this world is temporary and short-lived. <clears throat> and there's something so much bigger and so much better on the other side of this, which is eternity. It's what we were created for. And he doesn't want us to get short-sighted by giving our devotion and our allegiance to things in this world. He wants us to understand what we were created for. And it's bigger than just this life. And so life is filled with circumstances and situations where God challenges us and says, will you bring every hoof with you? Verse 27 through 29, last few verses. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let him go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. You know what's amazing about what he says right here? In his arrogance, Pharaoh says, if I see your face again, you're going to die. But the next time Moses or Pharaoh sees Moses' face, he's the one who dies. And not only does his arrogance take his, his, arrogance take his own life, it takes the life of his oldest son, it takes the life of his own people. His arrogance costs so many people so much. Devastated land. This is a clear indication of the condition of Pharaoh's soul. Always has been from the beginning. If I don't get what I want, you're not going to get what you want. It's a conditional surrender that Pharaoh is offering. And let me just tell you something. God never settles for conditional surrender. We are all in a battle for our souls. And please don't take what I said there lightly. Your level of surrender has to be complete, holding nothing back. Again, let me point you forward to the book of Revelation as John reminds us that all of these plagues are going to be revisited on us on earth again. Revelation 16, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into... People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heavens for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So how do you escape this day? How do you avoid being a part of this? How do you be, avoid that suffering and, and that loss? Well, it's very easy because it's spelled out for us over and over and over again. So I just want to end today by reading some verses that should give you light for your darkness. Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Luke 23, 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is when Jesus was being crucified, right? Darkness comes over him as he's hanging on the cross. Matthew adds to the story in verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 45. Matthew says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think about something. As Jesus is on the cross, the scripture says, a deep darkness fell over the land. 
And then at the end of that darkness, Jesus died. It's the same thing that happened in Egypt. Plague nine, darkness. Plague 10, death of the firstborn. They take Jesus and they put him in a tomb where he is in what? Complete darkness. For how long? Three days. Then what happens over three days? It's glorious the way the gospels present it. It says, as the sun began to rise, the women went to the tomb. When they went to the tomb, they saw these bright, shining beings who said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. From the very beginning, this has been depicted for us. In creation, everything starts with darkness and moves to light. Do you know how the Jews orient their day? The new day starts at dusk. Their day starts with darkness and moves to light. The whole story of the crucifixion begins with this darkness and moves to light. And the New Testament writers have said, as we follow Jesus, we are traveling out of darkness and into a glorious, marvelous light. How about your journey? How's it going from darkness to light? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your opportunity to dig into your word, to hear your word just resound with promises, with implications, with warnings, and with incredible jewels that remind us of who we are in you. Lord, when we surrender and humble ourselves and come under your authority, Lord, salvation can come to our soul. And when that happens, we begin the journey out of darkness and into light, glorious, marvelous light. God, today, it's a heavy word, but it's a good word because it comes from you. I just pray that if there's anyone here today that is struggling with what it means to follow after you, that today would be the day that they experience salvation. Today would be the day that they quit bargaining and they say, Lord, I don't know what you have for me, but I'm all yours. I'm all in and it's all belonging to you. Lord, for the rest of us, maybe some of us need to hold our hearts bare before you and say, Lord, show me the parts that I'm holding back, the crevices and the corners that I've hidden from you. Lord, I want you to have all of me. Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would move amongst this place and that you would do the work on the inside of who we are. Lord, as we conclude our time together here on this holy ground because we are here with you, I pray that um, the things that we've heard would run around in our minds, continue to convict our hearts whenever our hearts long to worship a false god. Lord, may we be reminded there's only one true God, and he controls the wheel of human history, and he calls us beloved saints, children. Well, that is marvelous, glorious, something we should revel in. So remind us when our hearts 
want to walk away and wander. Remind us of these truths. We ask this in Jesus' name.